Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Sports betting is sweeping across the country faster than the coronavirus, and wagering week is your antidote. I'm Tom Barton, and I'm a veteran sports analyst and respected sports handicapper who helped build ESPN's brand. I've been recognized and awarded by Pro Football Weekly and Gaming Today magazine as the honest handicapper. Let the other guys give you the same old boring sports talk with the same tired storylines. We'll give it to you straight here every Friday on Wagering Week. Don't gamble with other podcasts. Let Sports Garden Network's Wagering Week help your bottom line. Welcome to Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we're going to tackle a pretty heavyweight topic uh, today, mm-hmm. Connor. Timeless. The death of privacy. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, I mean, we all know we kind of live in this total surveillance society. But yeah. I mean, location tracking. Oh, virtually everybody has a cell phone, and so virtually everybody can be tracked. And mm-hmm. we've got DNA swabbing. People are saying, oh, well, it's just like a fingerprint. Let's swab everybody's DNA. Have this mammoth database. Uh, we'll get into all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we're also going to get into uh, sort of a Valentine's Day. Uh, we're past it, but alienation of affection. Uh, it sounds archaic, and it kind of is. It but is. in six states uh, across the Fruited Plain, uh, if you bust up a marriage, yeah. you can be sued, and people are still getting sued. So uh, if you're tempted to interfere with that uh, matrimonial uh, sanctified relationship, uh, you could wind yourself wind up in court. So we're going to get to that as well. Before we get to privacy, though, um, since uh, you and I are both uh, baseball fans, Connor, we're, we're kind of, and lawyers, we're focused on uh, the World Series cheating lawsuit palooza. Um, fans are filing class action lawsuits, but this one kind of caught our eye. It's a journeyman pitcher, a former Dodgers pitcher named Mike Bolsinger, and he claims that the Astros' sign-stealing scheme caused him to have such a bad day at the office, such a poor performance, he has not been employable since then. Uh, during the, the playoffs a, a few years ago, he was apparently a victim of this sign-stealing thing, and he gave up something like you know eight out of nine hits. I'm not yeah. sure why the manager kept him in uh, that long. Because everybody was getting lit up because they I were guess. stealing everybody's signs. I guess so. So uh, he's suing for millions of dollars. Uh, he would like the money to d- go to charity, apparently. I don't know if he's going to get any chunk of it at all, according to what he's saying anyway. 
Uh, the skeptics point to the fact that, well, he is 32 and he has a lifetime record of 8 and 19 and an mm-hmm. earned run average of just a tick under five. Right. Which, if you're not a hardcore baseball fan, if you give up five runs per nine innings, you're not going to. Uh, it's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not. I mean, there, there are a lot of horrendous. really successful pitchers with five ERAs of five. Yeah. But but you're, you're right. I mean, the point stands. This is a guy who is. Uh, has a, a a tough hill to climb because what he has to what he has to prove is that his career was really derailed by this specific performance or series of performances. This was a high profile, very high profile, wow. and that is going to help him. But he's got to show that. It, but for if not for the these uh, uh, actions by the Astros, this cheating, he would have had a better and more you know a better paid career. Now. Right. Is that easy to do? Is it easy to peer into the minds of baseball executives who decide people's salaries and on, on whose teams they land and say, well, if not for him getting lit up in the playoffs against the Astros, who were lighting everybody up, who were crushing it, it who weren't bad pitchers. It's not like he gave up a bunch of hits against people who appeared to, to be bad. It is hard to do, but I, I, if his lawyer is on the ball, he'll probably find a bunch of former MLB executives to say, oh, yeah, absolutely, but for this, mm, uh, yeah. uh, Wilbur would have gotten a contract from me. Yeah. I mean, one problem is that you you weaponize the court system with mm-hmm. lawsuits like this. Somebody's been hurt, they've been injured, but can they really, as you were suggesting, trace to the defendant uh, the the actual injury that they experienced, and you know this kind of lawsuit can inspire other dubious lawsuits. It's like a it's like a lawsuit. It's like these lawsuits you hear about all the time. Um, they're called toxic tort legislation. Your litigation, rather. You've got a a somebody who claims that, for example, they have cancer as a result of something from forty years ago, and the job of the lawyer becomes tracing backwards in time medically when when a person got sick and what can cause that to get sick now famously probably the best example would be mesothelioma and asbestos asbestos is a toxic substance that gets into your lungs and causes a cancer called mesothelioma and that's a signature disease and it's easy to trace that back and say if you got mesothelioma you were probably exposed to asbestos period that's the only way you get it and then you get to trace back and say well this guy worked in a mine or in a factory where there was exposed asbestos floating around or it's his wife and she got exposed because she was doing his laundry every day and it was stuck all over his clothes so those are easily traceable toxic torts. And the other kind of suit that's going on right now, Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to the mesothelioma, is the Roundup business. I mean, the the Bayer company buys Monsanto for something like $63 billion a couple of years ago. Some genius inside Bayer says, yeah, let's get Monsanto. They sell Roundup. That's a really good seller. Next thing you know, they have tens of thousands of suits. And a lot of uh, experts say it is total junk science, that it does not cause cancer, and yet jury are presented with these horrendously sad stories of folks dying of cancer, and some of them actually died during the trials, and the juries come back and award tens and hundreds of millions of dollars against Bayer, against Monsanto, and obviously you can have the debate as to whether there is a shred of evidence that it causes cancer, but it sure seems like in many cases sympathy takes over. A lot of these times these plaintiff's lawyers are very good and very persuasive, and they're able to tell these stories. Sure. The final example probably would be the talc. Uh, uh, oh, Johnson uh, and Johnson, Johnson yeah, and baby Johnson. powder. Tons of tons of lawsuits, and it's so intimate. The idea that your baby powder might be giving you cancer—just a horrific idea. All of these are great examples of how 
lawyers have a, a big hurdle to climb because it's not always mesothelioma, a signature disease. Sometimes it's a more generic cancer like lung cancer or breast cancer, or maybe it's just some other uh, syndrome of disease or, or, or dying early for other from other reasons. And it, it's not easy to see. Now, when we look at baseball or other situations, obviously there's no toxic disease. Every pitcher's career ends at some point, you know? Every career, every pitcher falls off the, the mound at age 32 to 36 to 38 or something like except that. Except for Satchel Page, except, he lasted a Except lot for longer. Satchel Page. And they all, all good things must come to an end. At what point was this guy going to, you know, really have a career that took off in his 30s? And that's a hard, that's a hard argument to make. Plus, the argument that juries are going to say, oh, this guy made millions of dollars playing baseball and now he wants more. The fact that he's giving it all to charity, I actually have never yeah. even heard. Yeah, that, that's a pretty how, cool thing. How is, how is that going to come up in court? Can he say to the jury, I'm looking for money, but I'm not going to keep it? They can't hold him to that. Right. Maybe they can't hold it to him. And that's a good question as to whether the judge would, the judge would allow him to say that. If I were that judge, I would never allow him to say it because you can't force him to commit to it. He could always say it and then lie and take the money anyway. Of course, you say he's had millions of dollars with an 8 and 19 um, lifetime record and okay. ERA of about five, maybe hundreds okay. of thousands of yeah, dollars. Yeah, probably. One toxic element here would be if this suit goes forward, uh, Major League Baseball, Houston Astros, it's going to be embarrassing for depositions, oh, yeah. subpoenas, producing records on all this. Mm -hmm. So we'll see where his lawsuit goes. The other thing I want to get into before we get into the death of privacy mm -hmm. is the fact that... Um, a uh, California state assemblyman named Mark Levine from Marin County, very mellow up there, uh, he wants to make it mandatory for all Californians to vote to the point where, you know, you could maybe go to prison if you don't I vote. I think it's civil penalties. A penalty, a civil penalty. penalties. But you, and it, this could go anywhere, right? You could eventually This could end go up all with, the way. There are lots of countries where voting is compulsory and theoretically it would be a crime. I believe Australia right. is one. Uh, but it, it, whether it starts with civil remedies, i.e. money, or ends up uh, at uh, at criminal penalties, the, the fact remains it would fundamentally change democracy in America. And he's got a great soundbite. He says, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires That's the active slogan. participation of all its citizens. It is, but really, do we want our elections to be determined by people who don't really want to vote, aren't willing to do the minor step of you know permanent voting by mail. Do we really want everybody to vote uh, on pain of of civil penalty? Well, we there's one good argument, which would be that people's behavior would change once they are forced. Once you are forced to have to cast a vote, you might then put thought into it. Whereas now, when you can get away with not voting, you aren't forced to, so you don't put any thought into it. I certainly, there are many local elections that I've not voted in because I don't care about who's going to be, you know, the, the city council uh, member or on the school board or something like that. I, I, it doesn't affect me. I don't care about it. It's too much time and effort and energy to put into deciding who's the good guy and who's the bad guy, so I just don't do it. But if you force me So you're me saying vote, you're a bad citizen. Yes, I am in many ways. I'm a, I'm a, a citizen who's fallen into the trap of many that many people fall into, which is politics is hard and there's so many levels of it and I have to engage with it at every single level. Are you kidding me? It's not like I'm missing presidential elections or Senate so, uh, you know, elections, but come on. What if some people who are now forced to vote, who right. never would have before, put some good thought into it. Yeah. And become very, you know, helpful and intellectual. Yeah. What about the other, oh, I don't know, 98% of those people who absolutely put no thought into it, but they're forced to vote. Okay, you want me to vote? Damn it, I'll vote. 
don't you worry that their input will be folded into the mix? Do we really want them to help pick our next leaders? I actually do, because I, I sort of blindly and naively believe in the project of democracy. So I think that people generally make good decisions and that they can be persuaded uh, to make the right decisions and that apathy is a greater danger than uh, misinformation. I think that if turnout was higher uh, overall, uh, it would be better. And so if you say, say we're at 40% turnout, right? If, if you can, if you could pass some law that would somehow increase 40% to 50, I think the world would be better a better place. To go from 50 to 60, the world would be a better place. Now, maybe from going 90 to 100, the world would be worse off if you make the last 10% of apathetic, lazy voters who are never going to actually look at the ballot and never figure out who's the good guy and the bad guy. Maybe that actually would make uh, the world a worse place. But is there any way to pass a law to make 90% of good citizens vote and let the 10% that shouldn't be voting because they won't pay yeah. attention to it off the hook? No. Yeah, it's better. Yeah. You're better off getting that extra 40% or 50% to go from current 40% turnout to projected 90% turnout. That is a huge a betterment for the world. And the last 10% taint it and, ru and ruin it? That'll ruin it. That might make it a little worse. Well, we'll see where Mr. Levine's bill goes up in Sacramento. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. When we come back, is privacy officially dead? Stick with us on Hey America, Christopher Hahn here, the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. What is with the president and the right-wing echo chamber encouraging these astroturf protests against stay-at-home orders around the country? It's ridiculous, and it needs to stop. Check out the Aggressive Progressive Podcast wherever you download podcasts. Too many lawyers. We're back on Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And we're talking about the death of privacy. And there's so many aspects to this issue, Connor. I mean, one that jumps out at it is, uh, is facial identification. Uh, there's an app produced by this company called Clearview AI, I guess, for artificial intelligence. They have a database of three billion images. Mm -hmm. and they can identify kids who are possible victims of sex abuse. Mm -hmm. So that's that sounds like a great use for it. Yeah. But uh, people are asking questions about how companies are handling this data. Right. The data has the database has the names and locations of kids in exploitative videos and pictures. So the cops can catch an abuser. He, uh, he they have pictures of his victims. Mm -hmm. So then the cops compare the bad guy's victim pictures with the photos in the database of kids and matches are found. And that lets the cops reach out to the victims, get right. victim statements to to help convict the bad guys. But some folks are saying, you know, this company shouldn't be trolling Facebook and Instagram for kids' faces. Uh, what's your take on it? My take on it is, big picture, we live in we live in a post-2013 world. And the listener and you might ask, well, well what that's do you mean? Easy. That, the math is easy right, there. Yeah, we do live in yeah. a post-2013 world. So what is it? what do I mean by that? 2013 was when Edward Snowden rocked the world with his... Uh, disclosures of what information the government was collecting about people and the ways that it was being used. Ever since about 2013, we have been inundated with stories about privacy or how to protect your privacy right. or what the government's doing. And 
what the government should be doing. And all of this had been happening for decades under our noses, or really behind our backs. And Snowden brought it to the forefront and started the national conversation, international conversation about this. I mean, the former NSA and CIA director, Michael Hayden, in the aftermath of Snowden's allegations, uh, and not allegations, revelations, um, said in an interview, quote... You make it sound biblical. Yeah. Quote, we kill people based on metadata. I mean, this this is the, the, the former head of the CIA and NSA. This is a guy saying, look, we take your phone calls and text messages, and we run them through these algorithms that create network spider webs of who you talk to and who they talk to and who they talk to, and we look at that metadata and we see how close in time... Uh, your conversation with this person went to the conversation with this person. We play, tw- we play six degrees of Kevin Bacon. So in, in what your, sense are we killing people? We're putting together treason cases against folks and executing them? Oh, we don't, have to, we, we don't have to do a treason case. We'll drone strike an American citizen on foreign soil on the basis of the fact that they called somebody who called somebody who called somebody who called somebody dangerous. That's metadata tracing, and that's the st- sort of stuff that the NSA and CIA was using our private data to, to do. They, I mean, they're deciding who lives and who dies. This is the, the most important thing imaginable. Who lives and who dies is being based in part well, on the Well, if somebody can establish that the federal government murdered somebody in those circumstances... Well, not murdered, then, legally. That we're talking right, about... Right, but if they can establish that it was unjustified. But what about this issue of just, well, you know, kids need to be protected. Why shouldn't this company troll through Facebook and oh, get oh, three absolutely. billion images absolutely. of children? we got to get these uh, child killers. Look, this, this, you know... Uh, if we're trying to protect children's who are, children who are victims of sex abuse, it's pretty easy and obvious to say that, you know, privacy is a right that that can be, you know, pushed and flexed on and 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 subsumed a little bit in order to protect children. Nobody really disagrees. Well, with automatically, that. we out. have exceptions. If you you know are sitting in your house on the phone. The government has a right to get a warrant right. to tap your phone, yes. and that intrudes on your privacy. But our presumption is, well, if a judge was convinced that uh, there's probable cause, it's reasonable to assume there probably was a crime committed. So automatically, we've got exceptions to the privacy. Oh, right? absolutely. The danger is not that we might uh, infringe on pedophiles' privacies. Once we've, dis- we've decided that this person is, is, is probably uh, engaged in harming children, it's easy to say that we're going to sacrifice their, their uh, property, uh, their uh, personal uh, privacy rights. But m- the difficulty becomes, as Snowden pointed out, that you've got effectively infinite information being collected right. about people and that that information can be used for lots of purposes or not kept carefully and then stolen by hackers or sold to private companies to use for nefarious purposes. And that is really the danger. We're talking about how to protect innocent bystanders here. I think uh, this is a a, a really important time to go back to what um, is probably the most famous article ever written in the legal field. There are lots of important opinions written by Supreme Court justices, but uh, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Brandeis wrote a uh, what's called a law review article. It's basically how lawyers write about interesting new academic topics. And he wrote this article in 1890 and published mm-hmm. it in the Harvard Law Review. And Brandeis's famous law review article is called The Right of Privacy, and he had a co-author named Warren in it. And he said, you know what? It's 1890, and I just rolled out of my probably feather bed, and I probably dipped my quill pen in a pot of ink, and I think the world's going to change. I don't think that, that, that we're living in the same world we were living in in 1890, 89. I think I have to uh, look forward and decide, what is 
privacy in America, mm-hmm. as the law regards it, how do we protect it? What we do right now, as of 1890, and when he finally published his book was sometime in the early 1900s about the same topic, he said, um, our law, system of law, protects reputation. It doesn't protect this sort of feeling that I have some stuff that's private and other people should invade in it. Well, let me interrupt to to tee up an issue, uh, a current issue, and you tell me how how this this seminal work on privacy might impact it. And the issue is cell phone uh, tracking. Uh, the New York Times recently was just going nuts on their editorial. They had a huge series of articles uh, about how that we we can track everybody's location now because everybody has a cell phone. And actually, the U.S. Supreme Court a couple of years ago said that when government tracks cell location, it achieves what the court called near-perfect surveillance as mm-hmm. if you had an attached ankle monitor. So the Supreme Court denied unrestricted access to carriers' data uh, regarding people's location. So is your uh, thought that that when somebody back in the 1800s looks ahead and is concerned about privacy, this is an example of how the government is has grown in terms of power to the point where privacy could be wiped out? Well, absolutely. That article, that that was so, it was so applicable and it was written with such foresight to see that the world is changing, we have to think about the future. And it may not have come from the perfect place, but it, it, it really was, was brilliant and ahead of its time in that it laid out a bunch of uh, aspects of uh, the of analysis, the ways that you analyze a violation of someone's privacy and said, uh, these are the things that we're going to have to think about. And let's go to exactly what you just said about uh, police collecting location data on people's cell phones. Mm-hmm. And let's look at the Brandeis article and point out that he and his co-author said, information, private information should be protected unless it is in the public interest. Private information should be protected unless the owner of the private information consents to its uh, release and publication. And finally, private information should be protected, and the absence of malice on the part of the person who's publishing or using that private information doesn't provide them a defense. They said a whole bunch of other things, but those three things are, I think, the most important things to remember. And you can analyze them with respect to that uh, to that, that New York uh, uh, ver- uh, result in that, in that criminal case about collect- collecting people's location data. Imagine, is it in the public interest to be able to track people's movements physically throughout the world? I can make an argument that it is because mm-hmm. it can prevent crimes. And and be, the government being able to access that data after it's collected can prevent crimes in the future or prosecute crimes in the past. That's in the public interest. You can also argue, what about the consent of the owner to release that private information? We think of ourselves as, 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 as having a right of privacy about where we are physically in the world. And if you monitor me on my cell phone, that violates it. But by having a cell phone... I'm broadcasting my physical GPS location all over the world. There's a third element, too, uh, we can come back to. Um, The absence of malice is not a defense for the publisher of my private information. The government might be using my information and sharing it with app companies and 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 other law enforcement agencies and all the rest for all the right reasons. They might be trying to protect kids, but that doesn't mean necessarily that the outcome of my violation, my privacy right being violated, is okay. And in addition to location tracking, we're going to get into some other issues. For example, uh, fingerprints, uh, universal DNA swabs. Uh, We're going to get into all that when we return on Too Many Lawyers. We're back with Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm still Conroe. 
So we're talking about whether privacy is officially uh, dead and gone. And the fingerprint angle is interesting to me, Connor, because I think most people are okay with the idea, oh, you know, babies are, have their fingerprints taken at birth. And, you know, a lot of times when you sign up, you want to get a license or to, to do something, you have to do prints. Yeah. So people are asking themselves, well, wouldn't we solve and maybe prevent countless crimes if we not only had a universal fingerprint database mm -hmm. uh, when you get a law license or a plumber license or whatever, but also what about a DNA swab? I mean, why is that any more private than a fingerprint? Yes, it provides some health data, so maybe we're going to have to make sure that, that you know, the HIPAA violations don't abound and, right. and, and people aren't denied insurance because oh, the insurance company saw uh, the DNA swab result. But assume that we could take care of that angle. I mean, isn't this going to be a massive crime-fighting tool to have basically a universal database of everybody's fingerprints and DNA swabs? So when you then you know, see evidence uh, of a crime, a sex crime or whatever, and nowadays the cops run it through the lab and they say, oh, sorry, you know, we don't have a match. Well, if we DNA swabbed everybody, wouldn't we have matches every time and catch the bad guys? Yes, we would. And that is, or, or many more times, um, setting aside the potential inaccuracy of some tests, let's imagine that they're perfect and then there's no danger of false positives. And let's only think about the possibility uh, of danger that can arise from maintaining a database of, of millions and millions and millions of Americans' right. personal information, specifically their DNA profiles. Let's use as an example something that has arisen in the post-2013, post-Snowden world of the Equifax data breach. You can think of the Equifax data breach as pretty much reflecting a database of all Americans. Mm -hmm. There are very, very few Americans who can Don't even credit. Yeah, can even make an argument that you can live and survive in our world without engaging with the credit and credit reporting system. Equifax is one of two uh, credit reporting firms that effectively control the economic futures of many Americans. They don't do it arbitrarily, but they have in their hands this personal information. And Equifax failed to maintain adequate security to prevent a data breach. And 150... I believe their defense was stuff happens. Stuff happens. It yeah. does. And we'll get to that. 150 million Americans plus uh, data, private data about their credit was stolen out there in the public, available for hackers to use, available for people to steal and, and, and abuse in order to sell them things. That was a massive data breach, and people looked around and said to themselves, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't want this. I didn't, I didn't sign off and vet that a private company, Equifax, or for that, that matter, a government, would maintain a database on a computer somewhere with crucial information that could hurt me, and if they don't protect it well enough, it gets out there into the world. That's the danger of the surveillance state, or one of the several dangers of right. the surveillance state. It's not just that people don't like, in the abstract, their information being maintained, and well, yeah, you can use DNA swaps to solve crimes, but what about the negative impacts of that on the individuals when things go wrong. Well, Your scheme uh, doesn't course, always work perfect. Apart from the credit situation where people get involved and you know, put in applications, yeah. facial recognition is getting to be a huge issue mm -hmm. because we're getting databases now. Uh, for 10 years now, government agencies in America have been scanning databases for suspects to prevent identity theft and so on. San Francisco is not taking it lying down. They're banning the use of facial recognition by cops and other city agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this backlash uh, against a technique 
it's, you know, you're in an airport or a store or a stadium, home security cameras, people are going to be able to spot you. But again, it, the obvious benefits to law enforcement are there. Should we object to the idea that our faces in various databases wind up in sort of a massive database so that if the cops are looking for a bad guy mm -hmm. and they go down to Target and they set up the camera and, oh, look, there's a, there's a child killer uh, ch checking out uh, buying a new pillow at Target, what's wrong with using that technique to catch the bad guys? The thing that's wrong stems, as all these, you know, diff questions about privacy uh, all stem, from the fact that Americans believe that they should be secure in their papers and effects and persons from the right to anonymity, yeah, essentially. The, from unreasonable search and seizure. And the idea that, as Brandeis said, the, basically the headline of Brandeis's article in 1890 was, there is something out there that we want to call the right to be let alone. Yeah, but if you're fluffing Mike Lindell's My Pillow at Target, in what sense do you have a right to be left alone? I mean, if your face pops up on on the uh, facial recognition software uh, that's tapped into the surveillance camera in Target, and it turns out, whoops, you've killed 87 people, right. why shouldn't we get you while you're fluffing the pillow? Because the problem is we're not just collecting child, child killers faces we're collecting literally everyone's face all the time and if you collect literally everyone's face all the time you get bad outcomes those bad outcomes could be you fail to maintain that database adequately with adequate security and suddenly uh, criminals or corporations uh, steal that information or use that information against you or that you end up with a social credit system like they have in China where your employer tracks your physical movement all the time. This is not what's happening in China, but it, it could be in the future, the, the next iteration of it, that they track your physical movement all the time, and they dock you when you go into Walmart because you work for Walgreens, right. and therefore uh, you can't be shopping at the at the competitor. Or they decide that you, uh, you know, engage in... Uh, anti-nationalist uh, speech online and, and dock your pay, or they fire you, or the problem with constant peering into people's personal lives and, and not allowing them to have uh, uh, the security of knowing that people don't always know where I am all the time and what I'm doing all the time, my actions are not all recorded, that allows people the freedom to dissent. What if facial recognition uh, tracks every single person who shows up at a political uh, rally? Or if you want to get, you know, go back to the fluffing a, a pillow in the, in a store, what if, you know, facial recognition tracks you every time you go in, into Chick-fil-A and get a, a chicken sandwich, and then yep. your liberal employer says, well, Chick-fil-A hates gay people, so we're going to fire you because you ate a sandwich. It's there. a very difficult, thorny situation, because on the one hand, you're always going to get the people who say a little more information is going to reduce the crime rate and catch these horrible people. Yeah. On the other hand, the potential for abuse is enormous. And yes, I think the Chinese government counter is not going to be fond of you after, after your comments here. They, they may put you on the naughty list. Oh, no. That's you not good. You don't think so? I'm going to get coal, because they love coal power. <laughs> see how I tied that in, naughty list, That's coal, right. dirty energy, don't worry about it. So we'll, we'll just see whether or not privacy is officially dead in America. But we wanted to tackle one other topic uh, here on Too Many Lawyers, and that's the, uh, the, the very modern issue of alienation of affection. Nobody really thinks about this. That but being a technical legal term, the phrase right. alienation of affection is, is a cause of action you can sue someone for, just like breach of contract.
Yeah, if if the married couple is uh, uh, going through life married, but all of a sudden it's busted up by somebody who decided, oh, I'd like to be with one of those two people, well, you know, uh, stuff happens, but in six states, you can actually sue if somebody busted up your marriage yeah. for alienation of affection. S- the six states are Hawaii, Mississippi, New Mexico, North Carolina, South Dakota, and Utah. Did you know that in Virginia... The state whose motto is Virginia is for lovers. Yeah. Uh, premarital sex, or rather any extramarital sex, is illegal. You know, you, you run across these archaic laws, right, exactly. and generally they're, they're the not going to be enforced. The thing about this law is that it actually is in use. That's right. We've got an example or two. Mississippi Supreme Court uh, recently agreed a plumber named Johnny Valentine so perfect. had a right to collect $750,000 uh, against a millionaire businessman who wooed Johnny Valentine's wife away. Uh, so in North Carolina, uh, Joe was happily married to Dorothy for years. And then, according to the court, uh, the, the marriage was busted up because the secretary for Joe started wearing short skirts and low-cut blouses to the office. So a North Carolina jury awarded Joe's wife a million bucks against the secretary for breaking up what was called their fairy tale marriage. Wow. The problem is, in most of these cases, it really wasn't a fairy tale marriage. Well, yeah, that's your best defense, is uh, this marriage didn't break up because of me interloping. It broke up because your marriage already stunk, and uh, 60% of marriages end anyway in divorce, so how can you blame me? It's just like a toxic tort lawsuit. How could you trace <laughs> it back to me? I'm not asbestos, and uh, there's no signature disease of mesothelioma. People die of various types of cancer all the time. People's marriages have to die of something, and this is is not my fault. That's going to be my defense when I uh, turn out to be a uh, heartbreaker, lady killer. <laughs> Very good. Break you, up you, you brought the episode around to yeah. full circle. All right, folks, that'll do it for Too Many Lawyers. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.